Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we'd love to be part of our buying kids time out this side door or in the back. Also, if you're at middle school age, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, somewhere in that range, we've got a great opportunity. Mr. Greg takes those guys and girls out and uh, does age appropriate. They're walking to the Gospel of John, as uh, we are actually, just fantastic. So we'd love to have your kids participate in all of those great things. So if you are here for the first time, let me again tell you how glad we are that you're here. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Uh, we have spent about 75 weeks going verse by verse to the Gospel of John. Uh, for the past year and a half, we have studied it kind of in depth, and we have taken a, a small little hiatus, a little break in there, to take a look at some things that are going on kind of in our context of our own community, uh, and explore some things that God is doing and some things that we're excited about. We have one more week this week, and then one more, and then we're going to be back in the Gospel of John. But it's a really unique time to be part of our church. So we haven't planted all that long ago. We're relatively young and new community, and God has brought us through a whole bunch of really kind of amazing seasons. And we're in the middle of one of those seasons right now. So for those that may have been with us for a while, you'll remember that we moved into the space about three years ago, and we built it out. It was an old furniture store. We took out everything and kind of made it as functional as we could to gather and, and have children, and, and we've grown into it. And when we did that, we only built out about 8,500 square feet of it. We left 1,500 square feet in the back, which is a collection of all kinds of sundries and things that people bring up here that we are supposed to do stuff with, and it's all back there. And so, but we didn't build it out because for financial reasons, and we didn't have the need, the space, the time, and, and we were trying to be as great as stewards of the resources we could as, as we had and as we could for the Lord. And so we moved into this space in 2015, and since then, we've seen God do really amazing things. He's brought us through all kinds of incredible seasons, both good and through the uh, sort of trudging through the challenge. We've been through all of those pieces, and God has brought us to a place where we're at this threshold of growth again. And, you know, we have grown at about 40% in average attendance since we moved in here, and we've grown 121% in areas in the area of our children. Um, we put stuff in the water fountains out there, and so then people get pregnant, and that's how it works. Um, we got a lot of kids. We have tiny little spaces, and we're busting at the seams. Those of you that have volunteered with Logan know that. Uh, and so we believe that it's time after three years for us to examine how we're best stewarding and using the space and begin to think about building out the back. And so we want to take that 1,500 square feet and build it out and to turn it into more classroom spaces for kids, multi-use spaces during the week. We want to be able to use it for Bible studies. We have dreams of things like a youth, fully functional youth groups. We have all kinds of stuff that we want to do and be a part of, and we believe that having that space would be a great way to think about that. For those of you that know me at all and have been with us for any period of time, you know this is a real struggle for me because I really, and you'll hear it today actually come out what we're going to talk about, I really wrestle with the idea of raising money to build out space for the sake of space. Um, this building doesn't define us. It's not who we are. It actually is just a tool in our tool belt to try and be as faithful a community as we can. But I really wrestle with the idea of putting resources that could go to sending people out there into our space here. And so I have to be in a place where I really believe with all of my heart that this is what the Lord is doing and why he's doing it. And so I've really spent the entire summer kind of examining, if Lord, if this is where you're leading us to, then I need you to show me who we are and who you're calling us to be. Because I don't want to put together a few good sermons about how, why you should give money so that we can hang drywall. Uh, I don't want to put together a bunch of things and think about, man, well, we're just going to grow for the sake of growth. I'm not really interested in that at all. I want to be faithful. 
There's been a few guiding principles over the years that I've, I've sort of anchored my heart as I've prayed and I've led and I've kind of moved to this community. And those things have taken different forms, but I mentioned them last week, but they've never changed. And actually, I want them to be our part of our DNA for who we always are. They're things that I've prayed through and I've moved through. But there are three principles that have taken different form that have kind of been unwavering to the character of who I want our church to be and who I believe God is calling our church to be. The first is that for everything that we do in life and function, that Jesus gets all the glory, period, and forever. So our entire existence as a community is because we want Jesus to be glorified in everything that we do. We never want to exalt ourselves, our buildings, pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look what we've done, or look who we've got, or look who leads worship for us, or all those things, or say, look at what we were able to do on our own. We are nothing. I mean, literally, we should have folded up shop a thousand times, right? But God is faithful. He gets all the glory forever, period. So whatever thing that we do, we looked at this last week in the sort of first principle in this teaching series is that Jesus gets all the glory. The second thing that's sort of been the guiding principle for me is that we want to unabashedly preach and proclaim the gospel throughout the whole of Scripture um, without hesitation, without reservation. So part of the guiding push of my heart is that no matter where we are, what we do, whether it's in Bible studies or whether it's on Sunday morning from here, we're going to preach the entirety of the gospel as presented in the whole of Scripture. And I believe that all of Scripture points to the person of Jesus Christ, from Genesis through Revelation, points to the person of Jesus. And we are going to unabashedly preach that without hesitation, without reservation. We want you to fall in love with God's Word. We want you to know Jesus through His Word, right? And so our goal on Sunday morning is not to get up here and entertain you and hopefully you want to come back and tell a bunch of funny stories and make sure that it connects with every little part of your relevant life. Our goal is to preach the gospel through scripture, let you have an encounter with it and fall in love with it and ultimately its author, right? So we are without hesitation want to be a part of that. And the third thing is that we want to push back from manufactured forms of community that try and produce perfect looking people and perfect looking spaces for something more authentic, uh, something more genuine, more raw, more uncomfortable, and more messy. We want to be a part of a community that is exposed on some level and is transparent and looks to know and be known. There are great ways to think about church. There's great ways to package these places. There's great ways to get you in and out in 55 minutes to make sure that your experience is perfect. There's great ways to shield space to make things look full. There's great ways to do all of those things to produce pictures of perfect people in perfect spaces so that our goal simply then is to have you keep coming. If that's the church that we are, I never want to come back. Our goal is to push back from that in in not rejected as much as opt for a form of something more real, something that's more authentic, something that's more complicated, that's harder, um, that's not easy, that's not for everybody, that's messy, that's at times uncomfortable, and that at times is vulnerable. We're not perfect at it, but we want to live into it. And we took those three principles, and they've come in various forms. You've heard me teach on them over and over and over and over again. They come up through all of the stuff I teach all the time. And we've said we want to build our community to be like that. So as I was seeking the Lord this, this summer, and I was saying, God, what do you want us to do with this space? And we've reached this sort of capacity, and I don't want to spend all of our resources on space, but I know that you're doing something here, and you're bringing children and their families, and they're wanting to stay, and we want to be faithful to what you're doing. So what matters to you? And that was the question I sort of took into all of August, asking the Lord, God, what matters to you? Because what matters to you, I want to matter to us. I don't want to stand up here and be like, hey, we need, we got no space, so we're just going to build some arbitrary space so that we can keep arbitrarily growing until we just don't know what else to do. I want to be purposeful in what God is doing. 
And so over the month of August, what I came to the realization of is that there are certain things in Scripture that really matter to the Lord. And there's more than the three that I've picked out, but these are the three that sort of stood out to me. And they're the three that we're exploring in this little series called The One. As we talk about building out space, what we're really talking about is who are we called to become as a church? What matters to the Lord and how should that matter to us? Because in the economy of heaven, what I discovered, what I know is that the one matters. And that one takes a different form and a different purpose. Last week we explored it as the one true God. That we exist, right, for the glory of the one true God. That everything that should unite us as a church, big C and little C, and I'll talk about more about that in a moment, should be for the glory of the one true God should not be for the self-edification of ourselves or for the sort of approval of all of our church peers or playing in the playground of the Bible Belt to make sure that our church looks like that church, it looks like that church, it looks like that church, because we're trying to keep up with all of them as they add these pieces. But that our, our first and foremost goal above everything is that we should exist for the glory of the one true God, period. We talked about that last week. The second principle or the second one thing that I kind of came up with in Scripture that over and over and over again is that we should exist for the nurture of the one universal church. Jesus loves the church. His expression of the continued gospel was the church. He looked at Peter and he said, I'm going to build my church upon you. Jesus set the wheels in motion for the church to be the institution that would carry the gospel to the world. Jesus loved, planted the idea, supports, and is the head of the church that carries out his gospel truth. The New Testament is in love with the idea that the church is broken and flawed, yet is used by God to impact the world. And all through scripture, we see God being about the nurture and the movement and the use of his people, the body of Christ. We're going to explore it this morning. But we can't be about the nurture of just ourselves, right? In lieu of every other church on the street and in this city and in this country and around the world, that we have got to be a part of a bigger picture of the body of Christ and want to be a part of a bigger, healthier picture of the body of Christ, one that is interdependent and that is committed to Jesus being made known all over the world. We're united by, with other believers across space and time, um, We reunite with other believers because of our common love and saving grace of Jesus Christ. And it matters to the Lord. The church matters to the Lord. And then finally, what we'll look at next week is that the individual, the one, that we should exist, right, for the salvation of the one through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The goal of our heartbeat of gathering together would be that somebody would come to know Jesus. Whether it be in this building or on your neighborhood block or at your workplace, wherever you are, that we would exist so that people would come to know Jesus. Because the one, the person, the individual, the name matters to Jesus. Right? His goal, as I read scripture, is not that we can gather 10,000 people in one building and have 11 services. But so that we could have the same heartbeat collectively for the individual that Jesus has. Jesus loves the one it's his creation literally god tells us that that he breathed life into them that he formed them in their inmost beings in their mother's womb he knit their souls together if the god of the universe loves creation individual creation like that then the church should love the individual created person like that which means everybody in the space has a name and that name matters their struggles their heartbeats their joys their triumph they all matter and they should matter to us and our goal as a church should be that What matters to the Lord matters to us, and we want them to know Jesus. 
So as I thought about those things and I unpacked them over the summer, I thought, this is, if we're going to talk about growing or being, these are the frameworks in which I want it to transpire. And if it doesn't transpire in those things that matter to the Lord, then I, I just don't want to be a part of it. And so we decided to start this process to begin to think about what that would look like if we truly kept that as our singular aim and focus, that the things that matter to the Lord matter to us. And we started this process last week, kind of looking at that. We're going to continue it this week. And this week's kind of principle, as I mentioned, is that we exist for the nurture of the one universal church. That as a follower of Christ, someone that has been saved and redeemed, I'm part of a much bigger picture than just what unfolds here on Sunday morning. That we are part of a universal church that have been collectively gathered by the Holy Spirit, saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ, and we're united across space and time with other believers from every language, walk of life, and time period. We are part of one much bigger picture, right? But in this context of our gathering of local churches, we actually also have a responsibility, a responsibility to live the things that matter to the Lord and pursue a healthy, passionate community that wants to see people come to know Jesus. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to explore some of those principles today that I think are really powerful for who we should be and who we are called to become. Not necessarily who we are, but who we should be and who we are called to become. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open up to 1 Corinthians <coughs> excuse me, chapter 12. And we're going to look at this picture of the church. Now, I will give you one quick disclaimer. If you're here for the first time, You've got to understand that what I'm going to talk about this morning is actually going to be, kind of fits into a much bigger context of a theology or an ecclesiology of what I believe about the call and the role of the church. Because if you look at the message I'm going to talk about this morning, you're going to think it's really easy to look at that and say, hey, we're focused inwardly on what's going on. But that's not actually true. My ecclesiology, which is what I believe about the church and what I believe scripture teaches about the church, is actually a very external picture. The church exists to be sent. It exists to be outside of walls. It exists to be in the cracks and crevices of culture. The church exists to continue the mission, the propagation of the gospel with the salvation of mankind. We exist out there. So if you take this message alone, it's going to look a lot like we're looking internally at what we should be. But you've got to understand that my kind of teaching on this picture is much broader. And I do believe that we have the responsibility to look inwardly, but not at the maintenance and cost and kind of goal of our own inward kind of you know, propagation, but literally because it's part of our call to be healthy as we're sent into the world. So this is not a call for us to gather in here and make sure that we're all fixed up before we go outside. The truth is it's a both and. We've got to be healthy as we function as a community so that we can take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world, right? So they, they go really hand in hand. So I want you to kind of understand that. Got your Bible, open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> and let's look at this picture of church together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, I thank you for your word that it is timeless and that it is perfect and that it never misses. I thank you, God, that you have given us a picture of of what community should really look like, of what you want to do and use the church for. God, there is a zillion other ways that you could have made your made yourself known, made your gospel known God saved people but yet you chose to use the church and it's broken people and it's busted up ways and it's failures to be the tool in which you showed your love to the world I don't think I'll ever really get it Lord I've been a part of too many churches that were broken uh, that were hurtful that were hard yet you and in your infinite grace use the broken and the beaten and the battered 
to testify to how incredibly glorious you are. And the fact that you take us, a ragtag group of people with all kinds of imperfections and failures, and want us to be a part of each other's growth, and want us to be a part of taking the gospel to the world, that want to use us for something mind-blowingly incredible, is beyond me. But I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful for a community of people, Lord, as we have here that are interested in similar things. And I pray, God, that it would be the driving heartbeat of our study of your word and of our time together, that you would get the glory for everything and that you would show us how to follow you better. Take a moment in your own heart before we open God's word and just ask him to teach you. Whatever that looks like or whatever you need to say or whisper to the Lord or just ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment, pray for somebody beside you. Um, We do this each week. In front of you, behind you, we want you to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in other people. Even if you don't know their name, just pray for them this morning. Pray that God would teach them. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in your tr- as we read your truth, as we open it. Teach our hearts and help us become the church that you're calling us to become. Not just individually as we gather here, but a part of a much bigger picture that is for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. So like most of Paul's letters that he wrote, uh, especially to the churches, He's oftentimes writing to address problems. There's heresy. Paul has heard that the church in Corinth was having a, they, I mean, they are a white-hot mess. They are having a huge struggle. And they're fighting inward inside the community within the context of that church over who's right and who's wrong. I mean, it's really funny. I used to, to be a part of a, a community of people way back when we lived in, in Austin that always sort of a group of pastors that always wanted to return to the early church. We've got, if we can just get back to the early church, right? And I read Paul's letters, I'm like, the early church was just as much a mess as we are. They fought all the time, and they were, had all kinds of kind of misguided theology, and they were believing all kinds of lies, and they were kind of pumping themselves up over here, and these group would fight with them over here, and they were splitting, and it was a, it was a mess. Because humans will be humans, We're sinful to the core, every one of us. There is no such thing as a perfect church because God has taken imperfect people and he's combined them together so that his glory may be known. And so the return to the early church shouldn't be our goal. Our goal should be obedience to Jesus Christ at every moment. Whatever that looks like will be that. And so the church in Corinth, man, they were fighting. There was a bunch of people that believed they were following uh, Paul's teaching, and he was the right. And some were saying, no, I follow Apollos, he's right. Some were saying, no, we, we follow you know, Peter, Cephas, he's right. And then some were saying, no, we follow Jesus. And they're like, oh, great, so you're you know, better than the rest of us. And they just fought all the time, and all kinds of heresies going on. And so Paul gets wind of this, and he writes a letter to them, basically addressing these heresies. And in chapter 12, he gives them a picture of what the actual church, the true church, should look like. 
right? And this goes directly to the church in Corinth, but also to the bigger picture of the church in general. And I think there's a few principles here this morning that we're going to see that I really want to pull out. This is what Paul says. Chapter 12, verse 12, we'll go down through 26. He says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body made up of, is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand and not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffer, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. A lot of that's super familiar, right? Because the metaphor uh, that Paul is using there, this idea of body, is one that we're familiar with, right? The body of Christ. We understand the idea that the body has many parts. There's hands and there's feet and there's eyes and there's all those things, right? We understand that. So the metaphor holds. And when we look at that passage in Corinthians, as we look at how the church is broken, we realize what Paul is doing. The church is really splitting up in, in Corinth for two main reasons. One, spiritual maturity, and two, division. They're fighting for the things they believe to be true in their own hearts. And so each standing up for their own ways, whether it's theological or political or social, they believe they are right, and therefore the person across the way from them is wrong. And so the division that it's causing is actually rooted in spiritual immaturity. They're missing a bigger picture of what God is doing and drawing them together. And Paul is telling them that. He's saying, look, you are all part of one bigger picture and you are splitting because your spiritual immature eyes won't allow you to see the bigger picture of who God is, how God has united you and what he is doing. And I think in that passage he lays out really four really important healthy characteristics that the church should have. Now before we dive into those, I want you to understand real quickly what we're talking about when we talk about the church, something I've mentioned before. right? So we have to have the same definition of understanding of, the, of what the church is. The word that's used predominantly in the New Testament for church is the word ecclesia. It actually doesn't mean building. It means people, gathered people of God, the assembly of people. It has nothing to do with physical location and much more to do with the gathering, the assembly of people. So the church in the New Testament is defined by the people that gather and not the places that they meet. Unfortunately, in our 21st century culture, we have, and actually before that even, we have adopted the idea of church into a location, right? So where did you go this morning? You went to church. When you're done at noon, you're going to leave church. I will tell you that's theologically bankrupt. It's actually really bad. Now, I know what you mean, and you know what you mean, right? It's the definitions that we have, but you don't leave church or go to church. You are the church. You cannot leave yourself. 
That when we gather with people, we are the church, whether we're meeting at Panera afterwards, or whether we're meeting at Bible study, or whether you're having your neighbors over that are believers in your home, or whether we gather here, or at Crossings, or Henderson Hills, or Life, or Bridgeway, or wherever. The gathered people of God are the assembly. They are the ecclesia. You do not get to leave it. As Paul tells you, you are basically brought into, by the grace of Jesus Christ, into one church with one head, with one body, by one spirit. We do not leave it, and we do not come to it. It is who you are, by definition. Therefore, we are as much the church as we gather here as we will be next Sunday when we paint faces in the park. You are as much the church when you're gathered here as when you sit at home with your wife or your husband. You are the gathered people of God. We are the representation of the gospel to the world at every moment, at every breath. So when we talk about church, I'm not talking about physical location. But we've kind of messed that up, right? Because in our culture, we've identified church with spaces. We put pictures of our buildings on our postcards, on our church bulletins, and and we, we worship things that we have built with our hands, right? It's a really dangerous line. It's not just this century. We've been doing it for, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. Intentions always, always, always start out good, but they end up worshiping the things that hands, human hands have made. So in order for us to really understand where we're going this morning, we have to understand a different definition of ecclesia, that we are the assembled, the gathering, right? And so what Paul is telling the church in Corinth when he says church is he's talking to people, people that are broken, people that are selfish, people that are rooted in their own hard wine way of thinking about what is right and what is wrong, politically and socially and otherwise, theologically, and Paul's reminding them they're part of something much, much, much bigger. And he does four characteristics that I think are really important that I want to explore. Some of these you've heard me talk about at length in other places because they're just true hallmarks. They don't change. But the first one that he talks about is unity. He says this, he says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, it forms one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized with one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. So Jesus, or Paul basically says, look, under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called as the church to unity. We are unified. Now, I've mentioned this before. We're not talking about unity for the sake of cultural happiness, as our culture wants to use it. Like, we all just hold hands and sing kumbaya, and everybody gets along. Paul's talking about unity under the banner of the gospel united by the Holy Spirit, which means the unity is in purpose and function, theological function, and not cultural happiness. So he's saying you don't always have to get along or identify exactly where the other person next to you is to understand that you are part of one unified body of Christ under one spirit. Unity. And he equates that unity with a human body which is amazing. I've mentioned this before, and a lot of you guys have heard me talk about this because I I brag about it a lot, but for a semester in college, I was pre-med. Actually, a half of one semester, I was pre-med. The beauty of that was I took two poli-sci's, I took an English, I took a medieval history. So my medical knowledge is brimming up, right? So I got to consider myself a physician on some level um, because I was pre-med. And then I switched to the much more lucrative and challenging discipline of general studies, and so uh, it's really great, made my parents super happy, um, but nonetheless, I was a physician for a half a semester in college, so this idea of connecting this thing to the body really resonates with me, right, it really just makes sense, but if you think about the human body for a moment, it's incredible, right, there's 206 bones, 
like 650 skeletal muscles and 210 different types of cells. Like Paul is saying, all of this, in this incredible, miraculous way, God takes and he moves together to form one thing. Like your body is made up of these incredible, amazing, miraculously moving pieces that all function together to allow you to draw breath, to take steps, to have emotions. Like it's an incredible thing. And Paul equates that unity with the body. He says, look, the body is of Christ, right, is like the human body. It's made up of all of these incredibly different, different pieces. And he says things like eyes and ears and hands and all those pieces of the body that intricately work together in unity for one singular purpose. He doesn't say they all have to be the same or vote the same or think the same or act the same or dress the same or like the same things or kind of be unified in their kind of personal attention to detail. But what he says is that they're unified in their purpose. And their purpose as the body is to function as one, under one spirit and under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The picture of the church, right, is that we come from every walk of life imaginable. We walked in these doors this morning from different places, different things. We're not talking about unity for the sake of being the same. We're talking about unity in the sake of what drives us. The unifying factor, as I mentioned last week, for all of us as followers of Christ should be for the glory of the one true God. That we exist for the glory of the one true God. That we've been saved by Jesus Christ. We cannot do anything on our own and we exist for his glory. Outside of that, what you bring into this place is part of the joy of living together. But what should unite us as the church is that we want to stand under that unified banner together. And that we would be known to the watching world by how we live under that banner together. And Paul calls that unity. And then he pairs it, right, with the next characteristic, which is diversity. Which those two don't sound like things that should go together, but you have to understand how we define unity. Listen to what Paul says in verse 14. Now the body is made up of one, not made up of one part, but of many. The foot shouldn't say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Oh, not for any reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not cease to be part of the body. The whole body... Were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So you get the idea, right? The diversity that makes up the body of Christ is incredibly important. I mean, diversity is actually an incredibly high value for a healthy church. Martin Luther King was really fond of, Reverend King was really fond of saying that the most segregated hour in America, right, is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And the most segregated school in America is actually Sunday school. And he talks about the lack of diversity within the context of our community. Racially, socioeconomically, you can kind of run down the list. Most of our churches are united by people that come from the same places or look the same or think the same or whatever. But a really incredibly healthy characteristic of a church is diversity. That I look around and not everybody looks like me, age-wise, demographic-wise, gender-wise, Right? passion-wise, politically, all those different pieces. That the diversity is actually a really healthy, amazing thing when brought together under the banner of unity for Christ. Diversity, just for the sake of gathering people from other places to say that we have this person from here and this person from here, this person from here and this person from the here. Look at us. We all look different. Isn't that great? That diversity without the banner of the gospel is really nothing. 
The idea of the body of Christ is that we're brought together not because we're trying to get together, but because Jesus unites all people. He is the single great equalizer. Because we are all so desperately in need of his grace that we are due the penalty of our sin. And Jesus unites us whether we're wealthy or poor. He unites us whether we come from this side of the city or that side of the city. Or whether we have a one parent or whether we had no parents or whether we have two. The great equalizer is that sin has entered the picture and has destined us all to be separated forever from the God that made us. And yet Jesus loved creation so much that he stepped into humanity and died that we might know him. And therefore, we are unified by this common passion and saving grace of Jesus. And diversity is beautiful because it is the equalizer of all things. I desperately need Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. You, I believe, desperately need Jesus and can do nothing on your own. Therefore, the true body of Christ, eyes and ears and hands and feet and all these pieces is made up of people that are equally as desperate for Christ but are from every walk of life imaginable. The goal of the healthy church should be we want people that don't all look like us, sound like us, speak like us, think like us. We're not looking for a collective group of theological robots that can just walk out and regurgitate truth they don't believe. We're looking for a group of people that are equally broken, that desperately want to know Jesus, that are willing to walk this out together, to read Scripture and find out what Scripture says and be sanctified, the process of being made holy, growing and maturing together. And that's not easy. It's hard. It means there are going to be people in this place that don't think exactly like you think. There are going to be people in this place that are still walking out their own views on X, Y, and Z. And our goal should be that we use Scripture as our guide to push us to a common passion for Christ. But there are going to be things that we bump into that don't all look the same. And what Paul says is that parts of the body of Christ don't get to look at each other and say, well, just because I don't look like you doesn't mean I cease to be part of the body. But you've got to understand, diversity does not work without unity. We are not talking about gathering a bunch of people that are all different so that we can have an ecumenical look at the world. We're talking about diversity that has been brought together by a common need for Jesus. And that changes the game. Because then my diversity isn't something I stand on as my banner. What I stand on is Jesus. A lot of times we talk about diversity. Everybody just wants to be diverse and stand on their own platform. We're supposed to be tolerant of everybody's platform. The truth is in the church, we come and we die on our platforms. We die to them. We ask God to remove our agenda. And we substitute our own wants and desires for the agenda of Jesus, death to self. So diversity doesn't become a platform we stand on, but instead something that is beautiful about who Jesus is and what the call of the church should be. So when you walk in here armed with your agenda, what church should do for you, right, the actual call of the church is to lay that down and say, Jesus, I die to myself because you've unified me with these people because of our common need for Jesus. So we've got this idea of unity. We've got this idea of diversity. Paul goes on and he talks about this idea of interdependence. Verse 18, he says, but in fact, verse 18, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? 
as if, as, if, as if there were many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. There's this picture of the body of this interdependence that's really important. That every single person that's a part of the body of Christ, local, particular, little c, and bigger c, is in desperate need, desperate need, dependence, interdependence on everybody else. What that means, the body can't be the body if you're the only one there. It also means that church can't be done in your house and your living room by yourself. Christian life was meant to be lived in community. It wasn't meant to be lived sitting on Sunday morning in front of a TV screen watching service. Through that can happen, but that's not how you participate in the community. Being part of a body means you're interworking with its pieces and you become dependent on them. If your entire construct of church is built around podcasts by certain people, you are not part of the body of Christ. You're an objective observer gleaning what is best for you. That's not part of the body. Part of the body is interdependence, which means there are people in the community that depend on you, and you depend on them. You know where this breaks down? This breaks down when everything is about me, which is exactly how our culture treats church. Half of you are here because you're church shopping, right? You're here because you've tried every other place, or this is number stop number five on a 10-stop tour, to try and find a church that you like, where you walk in and you say, what do you have to offer me and my children? And as long as you eat every one of these things, we will give you a second try. And we come back and I felt welcome. There was a parking space and you did this for my four-year-old. Then I will give you a third try. And as long as you don't do worship that I don't like, as long as you entertain me enough and we engage in these things, then we say, I think we could go here. I mean, it's just true. It's just broken, though. And I'm not saying every person should be able to fit in perfectly with every small community or particular community. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we came in here with a different set of questions. Here or any place you go with a different set of questions, which is not what do you have to offer me? As if I'm standing in some of some super buffet, right, trying to pick out all those things. Because then what that causes the church to do, the church has to say, well, what are we going to offer all these people? We got to give them all something. We got to have traditional. We got to have contemporary. We got to have even uh, this and this. We got to do this. We got to make sure we have these things. We don't have these things. We're going to lose all those people. So we play into the consumerism because the consumer dictates us. It's all bankrupt, every part of it. What if the church existed for you to be interdependent on them as they are on you? So what if you walked in here this morning and said, Who am I going to engage? Who am I going to meet? Who am I going to hug? Who am I going to listen to? I tell this to our member, member classes all the time. What if you walked in here on Sunday morning to basically say, I want to come to church because I think that God may want to use me. There's a lot of times I don't feel like getting up and coming to church location. There's a lot of times where all of us have been around and going, you know what, it's rainy or it's dreary or I'm not feeling great and so I'm just not going to go this morning, which is your incredible, perfect kind of Right? But the mindset really that drives that is that I don't feel like it. But what if the mindset that drove us to and from community was, I want to be used by the Lord. What if the goal that God had this morning was not for you to come be entertained and to get to tell us if you liked worship or not? 
What if the reason the Lord was bringing you here was so that you could speak into somebody else, sit next to them, welcome someone who's driven by seven times and has never stopped because they've been petrified. And on one Sunday, they pull in with their wife and they've been to church in 12 years. They walk in these doors. And what if the one reason that God wants you here is to interact with that broken couple so that you can make them feel like they found some place that loves them? What if you never came in here and you sat out, with, out there with them the entire time? Did you miss church? No. Interdependence is about the idea that I want to be a part of a community that needs me, loves me, and knows me. And I also want to be a part of a community that I need and I know and I love. Right? All of the parts needing each other. So you've got this unity, you've got diversity, you've got interdependence, and you have this final piece that Paul mentions, and I'll kind of wrap it up here. He says this. Verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. While the presentable parts, they need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor right, to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body. But its parts should be have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. What Paul is basically saying there is that every part of the body has value and worth. Every single part of the body has value and worth. And this is really hard in our culture because we have elevated and celebritized certain people within the context of the body. We've taken pastors and we put them on these pedestals and say, podcast, write books, blog entertain me and I will elevate you and I will listen to all of your things and you will be the only one that can teach and because you are the only one capable of teaching if we have other services we have to put you on a screen because no one will come to hear anybody else right we celebritize worship leaders right so and so's leading worship I can't tell you how many times I've heard I go to so and so's church and that so and so is never Jesus right it's always somebody else I go to so-and-so's church. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah, I thought that one was Jesus. No, that's not one? Okay. Um, just curious. I mean, the scripture, it's not me, you know. But I mean, that's the deal, right? We elevate these things and these people. But if every person has equal value and worth, now I'm not saying equal visibility, but equal value and worth, that means the person that you can't stand that comes to church here is still adored by God. The person that makes you crazy that bothers you, that rubs you the wrong way, the person that you actually think shouldn't be here because you know who they were in college, that person is equally adored and loved by God. And they have value and they have worth. And, God, and Paul says, those pieces that are small, God has actually elevated them and given them incredible honor. And those pieces that look like maybe they're throwaways, He's given a place of special recognition. Why? Because every interdependent piece of this thing has value and worth. That means that you have value and worth to this community. Whatever that piece is, right? It doesn't mean you have to do something. It just means as a person, a part of the body, you have value and worth. Your value and worth isn't defined because you clean the building on Saturdays or you come up here and you run the laptop. It's not because the task you perform your value and worth is because you're an, inter an interdependent part of a diversely unified body of Christ. And Jesus tells us you are worth something. So your value and worth is given by Christ, not by what you do. 
See, the common teaching of this passage is every little piece of the body that does something has value and worth because it does something. The hand reaches, the eye sees, the ear, they all have something. Value and worth doesn't come to what you perform or do. Value and worth comes because you're part of the body. So whatever your role is, is actually much more insignificant than you think. Your role can be as simply as being a part of this complex 206 bone, 650 muscle, 210 different type of cell structure. It means your presence is valuable. It means that you are worth something. Every part of the body has value and worth. Even those that we would look at and say, you're just taking up space. Paul actually tells us that they're not. That God calls them valuable and he elevates them and they are members of the body as much as you are. And if any part suffers, all of it suffers. And if any part is honored, all of it is honored. When I read that last part, I get, uh, that's hard, right? Because there are people in this place that are suffering, really hurting. Um, Maybe it's deep personal loss. Maybe it's brokenness on the inside. Maybe it's struggling with new steps that God is calling them to do. In a true, unified, diverse, interdependent body that recognizes everybody has value and worth, we all suffer with people that suffer. But the bigger question is, do we even know they're suffering? If church is about me showing up to a place and getting entertained, how do I suffer with those that suffer? If church is about me walking in and making sure that I like whatever I'm being engaged in at that moment, how do I rejoice with those that are rejoicing? In order to suffer, in order to rejoice with people, you have to know them. So when I think about this idea of us as church, right, little C and a big C kind of picture, I want to be a part of a community that truly knows those things. Not easy. Not easy at all. I don't even know how to really do it. But I want to be a part of it. Because the picture of a healthy church, unity under the gospel of Jesus Christ, not unity for the sake of tolerance. Diversity, because we all come from every walk of life imaginable, broken and in desperate need of Jesus. And our diversity makes us beautiful because he's the great equalizer. Interdependent, I need you. And you need me. Because we all have value and worth in God's kingdom. That is the picture of the body of Christ. And that's the picture that I truly believe Jesus gave his life for. So when Jesus told Peter that he was going to build the church upon Peter, essentially upon Peter's failures, right? Peter was not a perfect person. He had made all kinds of mistakes. Jesus reinstates him as Peter proclaims his true love for Christ, even in the midst of his failures. He tells Peter he's going to build the church upon him. So God takes Peter, who's this incredible failure, and he says, I'm going to build the church in all of its broken ways upon the back of perhaps one of its most broken people. And I'm going to use that instrument as a way to share the, my love and the gospel with the world. And so what Jesus did was he gave us this great unifying thing to remember all those truths by. Communion is not something that we just habitually practice as a church. It's actually a reminder of the great unifying truth that we are actually celebrating the meal that they celebrated together, literally together, 2,000 years ago. And in every 
church that truly proclaims Christ as its Savior since then has done this together. Maybe in different forms, different element types, right? Different times, but it's unifying. So when we celebrate this table, we're celebrating across not just our lines, but all lines of all people that have professed faith in Jesus Christ. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to anyone who professes their faith and hope in Jesus. It is the unifying picture of the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your truth. You are incredible. And the fact that you have taken broken people and you have used them, or you desire to use them, to tell the world about your love is amazing to me. No church is perfect because it is made up of broken, imperfect parts, but it is unified by this singular picture of beauty and grace that comes only from you. Diversity brought together under the banner of Jesus for the glory of Jesus, interdependent upon each other because you proclaim that every single one of us is worth it. It was worth it. So Lord, as we celebrate this meal together, I pray that you would unify our hearts collectively in this place and with every church up and down the street, throughout our city, across our country, across the world. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. On the very night that Jesus gave